This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello there. Thank you for downloading. This is the Redbox Politics Podcast from The Times. I am... Not Matt Chorley, quite obviously. I'm Luke Jones. I'm sitting in all this week on his Times radio show, 10 till 1, uh, during the week. And today we're going to be talking a bit about Metro Mayors, because it is a uh, month away from the elections in May, when of course there are elections in, in Cardiff and, and Holyrood and in lots of English councils. But also, it's the end of the first term for many of these new Metro Mayors, which were all uh, brand spanking new in 2017, the likes of the Greater Manchester Mayor or the one in the Liverpool City region or Tees Valley. So we're going to ask, what has the Metro Mayors ever done for us? Have they been worth it? Uh, have they actually been worth the time? And do we need more? Because this election cycle, there's going to be a brand new one. There's a West Yorkshire Met who'll be coming along. We'll talk about that in a, in a minute with the Institute for Government and also Lord Heseltine. Uh, but first, our columnists for today, Finkelvich, Danny Finkelstein and David Ronovich. So let's first of all talk about... Um, all what was announced by uh, Boris Johnson at Downing Street last night, uh, cautiously but irreversibly raising a pint of beer as we latched on then. Uh, David, are you, are you thrilled at the prospect? Um, I'm not thrilled at the prospect by that. I've never understood the Brits and, and, their, and their fixation on booze. I mean, the fact is there are all kinds of other things that you can go out and do, but nobody's kind of talking about it. It has to be a pint he has to raise. It's like kind of Farage always seen raising a pint in one hand, a fag in the other. It's, just, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a form of self-identification. Incidentally, a very male form of self-identification mm. on the whole, I think. And I don't say that to be critical. I mean, guys have got to do something. Um, as uh, Lady Bracknell said, you know, I do like a man who has a hobby. Um, uh, uh, but... Um, uh, but the booze thing, no, and, and I, I don't, I'm actually, I'm one of that, probably a silent majority of British people don't like pubs. But I am, like everybody else, fixated on the question of what's opening, what's not, when we can do things, when we can't, whether the vaccine works, whether it doesn't, and so on. It is completely dominant in my thinking, even when I try to ignore it. And I do try very hard. Danny, is, is it dominant in your thinking as well? Yeah, it's so useless to me. They're opening tennis and pubs rather than Chinese restaurants and museums of political memorabilia. Yeah. And I just, the, uh, 
Um, it's very interesting, this whole thing about when, when I was working for William Hague, we did a focus group and asked people, you know, if you met William Hague in a pub, what would he be drinking? And I think they said he would sit in a corner by himself with, a jacket on, with his jacket on, drinking sherry. <laughs> and I that think sounds lovely. That, I think he took this literally, and I think that's one of the reasons we ended up with that 14 pints story. Yes. Um, when he got asked about it, he didn't expect someone to, to, to add up the pints, but I think he was saying he drunk beer rather than sherry. Um, whereas, uh, you know, one of the reasons I can't be the leader of a political party, it's, it's one in a, quite a long list, is that I, drink, I don't drink. I don't even drink Diet Coke. So if I went into the, um, you know, the, to the working men's club in uh, Sedgefield, which, of course, now closed down anyway, but if I did, I, I would uh, be asking for a Diet Coke at the bar, which would be a problem. But did you feel, um, David, did you feel the, feel the optimism from the Prime Minister? He was at pains to say n- numerous times that, you know, that the, there was nothing in the data that suggested we weren't going to hit the, the April and May English roadmap yeah. targets. Look, it, it, Yes, it looks as though the vaccination programmes is working as you would expect from the data about its effectiveness. It would, it looks like um, the schools thing, which they worried might set us back, has not set us back, that the variance is not yet setting us back. So that is all good news. And so we're heading towards Chinese restaurants, definitely. Yes. It was definitely the case. I mean, the the government made a huge series of errors last autumn in the run-up to Christmas, which was, we're all going to do this, it's all going to be great, we're all going to... and all that kind of Boris Johnson nonsense. Um, And it all came badly unstuck. Uh, The vaccine uh, rollout has saved them in that respect and saved us too. But they did learn the lesson. And the lesson was you don't overpromise what you're going to do in the immediate future because things can change. Things could be worse. You have to see how they go. This is genuine. It's not some kind of rhetorical thing. You actually Mm. do have to see whether or not you have a great big uptick as a result of schools and so on. There's still a series of kind of unknowns. Uh, And they have taken and what they have done, therefore, is under promised, probably on the reopening side, etc. And uh, and of course, they've taken a political hit for that to a certain one, not a political hit, only in terms of their own backbenchers, actually, uh, in terms of the gloominess, which is supposed to kind of surround this. But what is quite clear is the majority of British people understand this as a kind of strategy and approach. And insofar as they understand it, they support it. Because what could affect... um... A very important point about backbenchers is they're a lot quieter now it's working. And um, (laughs) that has always been my theory, which is um, you have to pay a lot of attention to party dissent. But the way of uh, reducing party dissent is to pay careful attention to the motivation, but not necessarily to the advice that they're giving. Mm. If you'd taken their advice, the situation would have got worse and their dissent would have got worse. By ignoring their advice, the situation got better and their dissent became less important. It's a very interesting lesson in how to deal with dissent. but in terms of certificates or passports or whatever, it, it's cross-party dissent, isn't it? There's well, a big chunk of Tories, there's the Lib Dems, there's Labour, on this sort of question of, of liberty with the passports and the like. I do think, I mean, look, of course um, having to have a certificate reduces your liberty, um, but uh, not being able to go to an event is also a reduction in your liberty. So if, and I think it's a bigger reduction personally than being asked to have either a vaccination right. or, and this is crucial, or a test, allowing a yeah. uni- allowing universal access, therefore, to the passports, right. right? And that is really the only argument against it. David had a very good column on this and, made, and, and uh, several months ago made this observation. I think he was right. Yeah, I th- I, I, you know, you could in one way put this as dog in the manger versus discrimination. You know, mm. if I can't do it, no one can versus if I can do it and other people can't, it's not fair. Um, 
the point I made back then and that Dan is referring to is you can't really do it in any substantial way until most people or almost all people have had either the opportunity to be vaccinated. In other words, it's not their fault that they can't do the thing that they would not be permitted to do or that they can be tested so that we can be relatively certain that they're going to be safe and not going to add up to some kind of a hazard. If you can't do those things, and in that case, and I think publicans have made this point extremely well, the idea of essentially showing people the door before they even kind of get in, for, because they're not vaccinated with something they couldn't have, or they're not tested because they couldn't afford it, or for whatever reason, is really kind of, is really problematic. But if you can satisfy those conditions, then you can do it. The, the other thing to say is, there are certain things that we don't have control over, under which we will almost certainly have some form of vaccine passport anyway. And the most obvious one of that is for entry to other countries who will demand it, or... Yeah, yes. The first people, the first people to say they wanted vaccine passports, if you remember, it was the day actually our column came out, I was really annoyed about it because they announced it after the column published, was Saga when they said that they would only take people on their cruises with vaccine passports starting, I think, in May. Uh, and there's nothing very much the government could do about that. And I keep banging on about this, but there's again, there's more reporting in the Times today about talking about holidays, that thousands of people, more than 5,000 Britons visited the Maldives at the height of this most recent lockdown. Uh, and then also Matt Dathan uh, was reporting in the paper the other day that Border Force was saying that thousands of tourists are entering the UK every day despite ongoing lockdown restrictions, including one from Peru who stated on their visa that their reason for their trip was to visit Big Ben. <laughs> sort of, I can't get my head around it. Um, Danny, um, move us on to something else which you both want to talk about, which is um, what's described in the paper as a um, a decade of disgrace at the honours system. The Queen is, is stripping honours from an increasing number of recipients in a process that critics say is shrouded in secrecy. Danny, what's happening? With yeah, well, um, I, it's hard to read the story without thinking... Obviously, these, this uh, a procedure of justice of any kind shouldn't be secret. Mm. Uh, obviously, people should be. It should if people receive these honours publicly. If they're removed, it should be public. Um, um, that completely clear position jostles with my instinctive dislike of any kind of mob justice. I, you know, my instinctive dislike, effectively, of public executions. Um, I, I don't uh, particularly wish to be present at someone else's humiliation, even if their humiliation is merited. It doesn't, uh, it's not something that I have a great taste for. So these things kind of do, uh, do um, jostle. Clearly, it, se it seems to me there's a fairly easy way of resolving this, which is that the, the, the fact that someone's gone into the process of being considered should be made public, and the fact that they come out of it should be made uh, public as well. Um, and um, that does seem to be... But I, I can't view this uh, with great relish, to be honest. Because it would be quite a moment, David, if every so often there's a, a list published being like, here's who's had their titles taken off them this month. Well, exactly. I mean, of course, you and I uh, don't have titles. Not yet. Whereas, whereas, whereas Danny does. Yes. Um, uh, I think it's getting a bit late for me, frankly, unless Danny puts in a word or unless I do something <laughs> particularly bad. Um, I, one of the things I, I feel about this and looking about it is just how strange our honour system is. I imagine all honour systems are, are odd. But if you honour somebody because they do something really good, does them doing something bad mean that they shouldn't be honoured for the good thing that they did? In other words, at what point are they, and this literally is the word, cancelled? Yes. At what point does one actually cancel well, the other out? And then there's a question, on what basis do people get honours anyway? And the answer is, it's ridiculously arbitrary. And actually, the removal it, it, of honours in this case seems to be pretty arbitrary. Well, I, I, and I know, yeah, I know look, we say is, this... 
Danny. Go on, Dan. Yeah, it is completely. You're, you're, you're completely correct. It's completely arbitrary. And I used to always point out after I got an, the OBE in John Major's resignation honours list that I had an OBE that Ringo Starr didn't have and how preposterous that was. <laughs> um, you know, now, fortunately, he's got a knighthood. Of course, the reason why people can have it removed is that um, you become an officer in an order. Uh, so it's actually an office, I mean, uh, uh, rather than simply a, a medal. And that's the, it's, it's an idiosyncrasy of the honour system that allows that to happen. Uh, it's, of course, a broader historical question, um, interestingly, about Churchill, for example, does, uh, which we're having all the time, you know, does his racism cancel out his leadership of Britain in the Second World War? That is, uh, th- those are very live questions. Does one thing cancel out another? Um, but uh, while we have the system as we have it in some way, uh, there's going to be the question of whether or not people are allowed to continue. And I don't think it's I don't think it's too bad to have a system where people can have the honour removed. I just don't think a social system where we all publicly relish it is very good for the public morale. But maybe other people differ. People's tastes in these things differ. Some people may enjoy that or think it's valuable for uh, for honour. But also going down the list of some of the people, some of the examples given in the paper, they were kind of being publicly vilified anyway. Sort of Robert Mugabe losing his honorary Knight Grand Cross (laughs) of the Order of Bath, Chris Hume not becoming a Privy Council anymore, Rolf Harris dispensing with his CBE. It's sort of they're already in the market for being vilified, aren't they? I mean, hold on, hold on, Daddy. Before you do, just think about that for a moment. This this has managed to bracket Chris Hume's driving. with Robert McCarthy. <laughs> and, I mean, and, and this just begins to show you. I mean, the, the thing. You well, no, in, in fairness, there's Fred Goodwin in between them in the yeah, list. Yeah, <laughs> Fred Goodwin in between. And, and the thing that Danny said about them being kind of members of something, I didn't even know that. I'm yeah. 66 and I didn't know that. And it's obviously of no importance whatsoever. And they obviously don't do anything with it other than kind of, you know, flout the gong around and stick it on the end of their letterheads, etc., uh, where, where they're so minded. Or if you're Sir Simon Jenkins, you tell everybody that you're, you don't want to be called Sir, which I think is the best one of all it uh, is, yeah. really. <laughs> i agree with and, that and and i i mean we always say there should be an overhaul of honors and the basis on which they should be given and then we realize we never agree about what should be in that overhaul so it? as a result of not being able to agree we continue with the absurd system we've already got of course and what is an to ourselves, it's absurd what is an objective system? And I, and I, and I you know, I, 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 I agree with that. Interestingly, you said Fred Goodwin was in the list. Mm. He stuck out for me because, in fact, he's the one person on the list who, who had their honour removed for not committing a crime. So he's former I thought RBS that was very boss. interesting. And I was actually against that. And I didn't think that, um, that I think if someone... You know, I think he probably shouldn't have had that knighthood awarded in the first place because it was kind of awarded for services to uh, to financial laxity. Mm. Um, but uh, but <laughs> but having given it to him, I, I didn't think that was right actually. Whereas the other ones, I you know, I did think was right. But that, but I you know, when I wrote that, which I did, um, it was it was let's say it was one of my more lonely columns. Yes, um, David, tell us about um, the. Political drama in the US. We're slightly light on political drama in Congress uh, at the moment since launch left. This is Matt Gates. I've just been following this in a kind of small way, you know, just actually that's not even true. I'm listening to everything I possibly can listen to about this because it's so bizarre. Matt Gates is this uh, Florida congressman who is incredibly pro-Trump. He actually looks, if you look at him, he looks as if he's actually being put together by computer. He's got this kind of extraordinary hair and face, (laughs) etc. So he actually looks as if he's he's somebody's avatar, uh, etc. And he's, you know, the biggest kind of pro-Trump person there is. 
And he has gradually been embroiled in a scandal which involves one of the other office holders in Florida, uh, uh, who was the kind of, who's the ta something like the tax assessor. Danny, you probably understand the positions better than I do in Florida. And what this other guy has done, who Gates was a friend of and that Gates might have known about, is a catalogue of things that are so bizarre um, that you can get away with or that he has up until now get away with the States. But in the end, it's led up to Gates being uh, accused of trafficking a minor across uh, for sexual reasons across state lines. In this case, the, the girl, the alleged uh, person is 17. Uh, so wouldn't count in Britain, but does count in uh, does count in America. Uh, at which point he then kind of counterattacks in the traditional kind of what you call the Roy Cohn way, which is by attacking those who are accusing him by saying it's absolutely kind of appalling how he's being accused. And the whole thing is just... It's honestly, it's a Netflix series mm. happening right out there. I do recommend people kind of go into and sort of check it up on extreme. Google. The details are fantastic. Yeah, it, it, it's not quite, including his fiance. It's not quite the Jeremy mentioned. Thorpe scandal, no. but it, but it's, but it's not far off that in terms of its kind of uh, eye-boggling nature, isn't it? And I just wanted to mention, in terms of the maybe a screen adaptation, which either of you might uh, turn your pen to, the details. So his fiance, who's standing by him, is called Ginger Lucky, and they met at Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is incredible. And, and it involves the stuff about sugar daddies, which is the most appalling kind of setup, really, in mm. which kind of younger women hook up with older men in return for money. It's a kind of form of sort of fool yourself uh, prostitution. But, but Danny, yesterday we were talking with um, Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis about uh, the, the, the decline of shame in public life, and this seems like another example of that, doesn't it? Uh, you know, across the pond. Well, it does, it's interesting because it does link to the point actually we were discussing with honours and what role uh, public pillaring is and or has and all that. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, my view is that um, we have sort of declined in to the in the extent to which we care about you know people's sexual peccadilloes um and uh, they often don't produce scandals but that can, this just was um a combination of of unbelievable hypocrisy with probably outright abuse um and uh and possibly law breaking as well um and um it's interesting that somebody who clearly thought his politics were above the law uh, quite possibly thought other parts of his behaviour were above the law uh, as well. Um, and how somebody can be plausible in the way that Matt Gates, you know, is, uh, while saying things that are incredibly implausible. You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Luke Jones, in for Matt Chorley. That was David Aronovich and uh, Danny Finkelstein, columnist, taking us through the news. Uh, now, though, it's time to talk... Mares, what have they ever done for us? You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Now, it is a month away from the May elections and it's the end of the first full term for a load of Metro mayors in England. They were shiny and new in 2017. Metro mayors for Cambridgeshire and Peterborough, Greater Manchester, the Liverpool City region, Tees Valley, the West of England and the West Midlands. But what have Metro mayors ever done for us? Akash Porn is a senior fellow for the Institute of Government Live with us. Hi, Akash. Hi, good morning. Thank you very much for your time. First of all, uh, rewind us back to, well, pre-2017 and the logic of having these mayors in the first place and in those places. Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, metro mayors were put in place in, um, well, now uh, we've got them in, in, in eight or nine city regions across England uh, to fill the gap, really, in, at the intermediate level between central government and uh, and local gov- and local councils which has existed um ever since the the conservative government back in the 1980s um abolished bodies that existed like the glc in london mm. and uh, metropolitan counties in in other big english english cities so ever since then we've we've lacked that kind of middle tier um, of, of governance, the, the Labour government tried to fill it with uh, regional development agencies and regional assemblies and so on, and uh, that didn't really take root. But the government, um, certainly after 2015, uh, recognised that there was a need for um, elected institutions at that level to take decisions around transport, around house building, um, around provision of certain public services um, that really operate at a, at a regional level and, and are too large for um, individual local councils to be responsible for. And you're using words there like decisions and responsible for, but I wonder actually how much power that they actually have. Well, the picture is quite mixed. I mean, we've seen the development of um, of. of in some ways quite different models in different parts of the country so um i mean i think uh, when you look at the 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 metro mayors that are in post today Mm. um it's clear that for example andy burnham in greater manchester has a wider set of, of responsibilities than than some of his uh counterparts so he for instance um, and the same will apply to the newly, uh, new, new mayor to be elected in West Yorkshire as well, um, plays the role of police and crime commissioner. So mm. um, some of the mayors have a role in, um, yeah, in, in, in justice policy in that way. All the mayors um, and the combined authorities that they chair um, do take decisions around uh, transport policy, um, around investment into roads and, and rail uh, franchising of, of buses, for example. So public transport is a, is a big area of responsibility for them. They also have power over um, over skills provision, so uh, commissioning of, um, of, of education for adults, 
um, particularly uh, education, not, not higher education, not universities, but, but education that's linked to getting people uh, ready for uh, work or getting people back into work. Mm. Um, so those are some of the big areas. Uh, and, and then they have a role also in um, uh, spatial planning and deciding where new houses should be built, um, though the mayors can only really build houses um, when they can agree to, to get the money from central government and when they can agree with, with local councils on exactly where to put them. And across, I know it will vary across all the different metro mayors that, that we mentioned from 2017, but on the whole, would you say it's worked? Would you say as providing that middle layer, would you say, uh, you know, uh, having an elected official who can take those kind of decisions, which you just listed off then, has it been fruitful? You know, I do think it's quite early to make a, a, a really solid assessment of of the impact of um, this set of reforms uh, for, for the reason that the primary driver of this agenda was really an economic one. Mm. Um, it was a recognition that, you know, in some of these big uh, cities, so Greater Manchester, Birmingham, the West Midlands area, Liverpool and so on, um, economic productivity was lagging compared to London and the Southeast. Um, and there needed to be these uh, mayors and combined authorities to uh, uh, in place to, to develop a better strategy for economic growth and, and infrastructure investment and so on. And those are naturally things that take some time to, to pay off. So when you're talking about, you know, building new public transport systems, investing in uh, in, in skills and, and building new houses and infrastructure and so on, you can't really see the, the fruits of that in terms of yeah. improved economic performance for some time. But I do think that the, the mayors, well, in the end, it'll be for the voters to, to, mm. to decide in the various places whether they're impressed or not by, by the performance of, of these new institutions. But I think that the mayors have shown their value um, in being able to develop joined up plans and strategies in partnership with councils and other local stakeholders. Um, and as I say, being able to fill that gap uh, between, the, between Whitehall and the town hall. Um, the other way that I think you can really see that, that the impact that the mayors have made is the profile they've been able to give um, to their cities and, and regions, for example, in negotiations with, with central government to, to get more funding or negotiations around uh, coronavirus policy and lockdown restrictions and so on. But that's an interesting point you raised, but, but did that actually work? There was very there was lots of high-profile statements by the, the Greater Manchester Mayor and uh, the West Midlands Mayor and even in Tees Valley as well, but did, it, did they actually get anything out of it in the end in terms of uh, pandemic relief? Well, I think I think that is uh, I think that is what that episode showed us that yeah. on that particular issue, most of the levers were certainly held at the centre. And um, yes, I mean Andy Burnham, obviously in particular, and and some of the other mayors as well, as you say, uh, were very vocal in 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 making the case for um, additional funding or, or mm. changes to lockdown rules. Um, but yeah, they didn't necessarily have the powers to uh, to, to change. Uh, policy themselves um, and I think that also goes to the point that this is very much an unfinished agenda I mean when it was kicked off after 2015 there was a lot of uh, quite 
radical rhetoric around this being a, a devolution revolution. That was the, the phrase that George Osborne, uh, who, who then was the sort of principal political driver of this, liked to use. Um, and I don't think we've quite seen a, a revolution. Uh, the powers of the Metro mayors is far, a fall far short of, of the powers enjoyed certainly by the devolved institutions in, in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, so I think there is a long way to go, um, but I think one would not uh, want to, to turn back the clock because the, the, the basic rationale for putting in uh, mayors and, and the combined authorities as well at that tier of government um, is still very much valid. And just finally, Akash, in terms of uh, your years watching what's been happening, which one's been your favourite? Which of the mayors? Yeah. As in, no. not, not as in not the personality, but the, the the place and 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 the position and maybe what's been done with it. Well, I mean, I don't really most interesting sort of league league table ranking. Them. <laughs> I mean, as, as I say, I mean the, the 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 model in Greater Manchester is the most extensive. Um, I mean, that's partly because it was building on institutions that existed long before. 2017 indeed before 2015 there was a long history of collaboration between local authorities in in that area so they have been able to go further um and i think that's given the mayor there the um ability to join up across different uh public services and and these different economic functions in a way that is uh beyond uh what is available to to, to some of the other mayors so i i think greater manchester does have some uh, lessons that other well other places can can learn from as this process continues to to progress akash porn senior fellow at the institute for government thank you very much for for briefing us on that and as akash mentioned there's going to be a a new metro mayor added to this list in west yorkshire the uh, race is well underway rob parsons is the political editor at the yorkshire post live with us this morning hi rob morning morning so tell us about the race so far who are the run- runners and riders um, yes, so there are seven candidates who've uh, currently declared themselves, and it's um, the kind of mixture you might expect. Um, there are a few local councillors as well as a representatives of smaller, more local parties. Um, I think it's fair to say that for people outside West Yorkshire, there probably aren't any real household names in the running. Uh, in, in the last few months, there was talks of the likes of uh, Justine Greening or maybe Saida Varsi, uh, who are both from Yorkshire, running for the Conservatives or any of the well-known Labour MPs like Yvette Cooper, but that didn't materialise in Mm. the end. Um, uh, So the two main contenders are uh, Tracy Brabin for for Labour and uh, Matt Robinson. Tracy Brabin's uh, well, household name. That's that's true. That's true. Perhaps I'm doing Tracy a disservice. But Depends how political she, your household is, I guess. That's that that is that is true. Yeah. I think she possibly doesn't have quite the name recognition because she hasn't been an MP for quite as long as mm. some of the others that I've mentioned. But she she is an interesting one actually. She became MP for Batley and Spen after the murder of Joe Cox in 2016. But her yes. background is in culture and the arts, and she's a former actress in Coronation Street, amongst other things. And she she served as shadow culture minister under Jeremy Corbyn and Keir Starmer. So I think if she became mayor, she would, uh, she'd have quite a heavy focus on culture, I think, because that is mm. one of her big areas of interest. Um, Matt Robinson, who's the Conservative, he, he's a, a Tory councillor in, in North Leeds, and he's got a, a senior shadow role uh, on the Labour-run Leeds City Council. And he's previously stood to run as the local police and crime commissioner um the bookmakers have got tracy as a odds-on favorite to win and i think that that's fair she's got 
a bit more name recognition, despite what I uh, said earlier. And uh, despite the 2019 uh, general election results, uh, West Yorkshire, I think, still generally uh, is more inclined to vote Labour. Um, there could be a low turnout, I suppose, which might make for a more unpredictable result. But as there are local elections going on throughout West Yorkshire at the same time, I think that will bo uh, boost the turnout potentially. Um, it's quite interesting, I think, that uh, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, has come to West Yorkshire to support Tracy Braben. But so far, I haven't seen a huge amount of evidence of the Tory party machine throwing its weight behind uh, their candidate, which I guess might be sort of give an indication of how hmm. hopeful they are about winning. Um, and there are, in terms of other candidates, there are local councillors uh, standing as the Liberal Democrats and Green Party hopefuls. There's a, a candidate from the Yorkshire Party, which wants to see Yorkshire have its own parliament. Uh, and uh, the Reform UK and the English Democrats also have candidates. Mm. But um, I think, to be honest, unless there's a big surprise, it will almost certainly come down to either Tracy Braben yeah. or, or, or Matt Robinson as the winner. And tell us about the position itself, because whoever wins will become the mayor of West Yorkshire. Um, what, what powers exactly will they have? What will the role be? Um, well, I mean, it's similar to other mayors around the country. Though obviously, devolution deals do vary a bit. I think one of the... Um, interesting uh, sort of quirks in West Yorkshire is that whoever is mayor will take on the powers of the police and crime commissioner which not many uh, mayors have chosen to do so far and actually Tracy Braben has yet to uh, reveal who her deputy uh, would be if she, uh, her, her policing deputy would be I think if you look in Greater Manchester or London which are mayors who have taken on that policing power they uh, it, it, it's um policing is one of those issues which can end up sort of uh, generating some sort of negative press for the for the mayor. So it, it, it might potentially be a, a millstone around their neck or, or might give them an opportunity to, you know, shape the, shape the agenda. But um, I think amongst local leaders and, and, and businesses in West Yorkshire, there's quite a strong appetite for a metro mayor and the devolved powers and funding they, they bring with them. And they recognise how, how vital this could be in rejuvenating the West Yorkshire economy, particularly as we come out of the, the, the pandemic. Um, transport links are notoriously poor in this part of the world. In fact, it's the, the largest urban area in Western Europe without a rapid mass transit system. Uh, and the, the devolution deal that created this post of Metro Mayor will make it easier for West Yorkshire to bid into a £4 billion funding pot to help build a, a metro system. Um, and adult uh, adult skills is a big one too. It's um, I think it will only become more so as the economy changes post pandemic um, because productivity levels in West Yorkshire, as Akash alluded to, are uh, below the national average. And I think it comes down to a lack of skilled jobs, which is kind of linked to the relatively poor educational outcomes. So the whoever is elected Metro Mayor will get control of the sixty three million pound a year adult education budget, so they can help tailor the kind of courses that are available to people after they leave school with the aim of matching them up with what employers mm. uh, are looking for. And Rob, it's, it's hard, I guess, to gauge a month out from the actual election, but how can we sense how engaged people who are eligible to vote actually are in this? Um, well, like you say, it is difficult to tell. And I guess I, I think that the campaign has been a bit of a, a slow burn so far because obviously we're in still in, in in a form of lockdown it's harder to do campaigning and the, uh, the the candidates can't get out and about as much um i mean i would i would say that it, i mean it will it like i said before it helps that there are local elections going on at the same time so people would be voting for their local councillors anyway but i think it's probably fair to say that 
amongst the general public awareness of metro mayors and what they do is probably relatively low because uh, mm. their roles are uh, a bit hard to define not not quite as easy to understand as a, a councillor or a council leader and I think for some people they might not make the distinction between these metro mayors who have a sort of uh, economic role across a wider city region and the um, elected local mayors that uh, you might remember there was a, a referendum on in 2012 and most people in in Yorkshire rejected that, that idea. So I think there may be, for, for some people, a bit of confusion about what, what this Metro Mayor will actually, will actually do. Thank you very much for your time this morning, for, for briefing us on what's ahead, potentially, for the, for the Mayor of West Yorkshire, Rob Parsons, Parsons, political editor at the Yorkshire Post. Uh, stay tuned, we'll hear from somebody who's a big fan of devolution, Lord Heseltine. This is Times Radio. Live with us this morning to talk Metro Mayors and, and what on earth they've ever done for us is former Deputy Prime Minister Lord Heseltine. Good morning. Good morning to you. Um, so in terms of we've had almost a first full term from the Metro Mayors for, as I mentioned earlier, Greater Manchester, Liverpool City, Reason, Tees Valley, West of England, West Midlands, Cambridge and Peterborough. Has it been worth it, do you think? Well, I think it's an essential step to the proper management of our economy. Uh, it's an essential step to replicate what every other advanced economy of our sort in the world does, which is to devolve power to local leaders, local effective machinery, and to people who understand, because they live and breathe and work there, the powers to make things happen. Um, And uh, frankly, this is a journey which began in the 1960s, when I first became involved, when the Redcliffe Maud report looked at the structure of local government in this country, there were then 1,400 local authorities. Uh, We got it down to about 300 now, but actually the recommendation then was we needed 60 unitary authorities. As I say, we've still got 300. There's too many, there's too much overlapping, there's too much blurring of the responsibilities, and there is much, much too much power concentrated in London. And worse, it's not even concentrated coherently, it's concentrated functionally. You've got a Ministry of Housing, a Ministry of Transport, a Ministry of this, a Ministry of that, and the relationship and the coordination is is simply unsuited to driving the local economies, which are the vital ingredients of the national economy. You talk about this as being a journey for you in an ideal world. What is the end point? Well, the end point as, is as in an ideal unitary authorities, about 60 of them. Yes. Uh, well, the, the ideal thing would be for the government to introduce legislation to designate about 60 authorities. There would be the major conurbation authorities. Uh, We've made a lot of progress there. Uh, And then there would be unitary counties. They would all have significantly enhanced powers over their industrial strategy. They would all have elected mayors so that there was somebody accountable, uh, somebody identifiable, and someone with the ability, frankly, to not and coordinate local enthusiasms. That's the ideal. And um, it looked as though we were going to get very close to that. Um, George Osborne as Chancellor and Greg Clark as the appropriate Secretary of State, very considerable strides were made a few years ago. The truth is that the momentum of it, the, the devolution agenda is dead. And if you look at the 
work that the government is doing, it's all now back to functional announcements, a bit of transport here, a bit of housing, all on the implementation of the going to Whitehall. It's a step and it's a huge missed opportunity. Frankly, COVID has drawn a curtain all of this and, and that we can all understand and sympathize with. But the Brexit challenge, the restructuring that is consequent on Brexit, that has been set back by the failure to pursue the devolution agenda. And so I wonder how you, how you square what you're saying as the as the the devolution agenda being dead within this current government, and their aspirations for some kind of a levelling up between uh, North and South England in particular. Well, what they've done is to promise that the mayoral authorities would all get the same powers as Manchester, but they've not done anything about it. So you've got this patchwork quilt of conurbation authorities with a range of different powers. And then, to make it worse, when George Osborne was there, there was central government pot of expenditure to which the mayors could bid for capital expenditure over a reasonable period of time. That's now all been broken up effectively into the budgets of the spending departments. And the, the way this was going to be dealt with was a white paper on devolution. Hmm. And, well, you're a journalist, there are lots of other journalists around. You start making inquiries about what is going on in Whitehall about the devolution agenda, and you'll get a lot of evasive replies. I, I tried the other day. I put down a parliamentary question. And the, the reply, frankly, was an insult. I would never have allowed a reply like that to get past me as a minister uh, to, to a parliamentary question. It would simply sort of, you know, shrug your shoulders, now you see, now you don't. Uh, so it's quite obvious that the incident that George Osborne and Greg Clark deployed, which really made progress, uh, has been turned off. Of course, uh, famously, quite recently, uh, Boris Johnson was caught saying that uh, Scottish devolution had been a disaster. Do you think he feels the same about England? I've no idea. He was mayor of London, rather good mayor of London. And so I can't believe he think that. But you've got to allow, Boris does say sometimes, which are perhaps not as well considered in, in, in context. Hmm. Um, so, I, I, frankly, I, I'm not going to get drawn on, on that aspect. Could I just finally ask you a couple of uh, questions on different things, if I may? Um, we've been hearing a lot in the Sunday Times and on and on Times Radio about uh, your colleagues, the hereditary peers, how they are overwhelmingly uh, white and male, how they're expensive, how they barely say anything in the chamber and how they're more often than not talking about their own business interests. You, in the past, about 20 years ago, voted against getting rid of them. Has your opinion changed? I think... The House of Lords is difficult to justify until you try to create something else. And when you try to create something else, effectively, you end up with a second House of Commons. And I don't think that that has uh, a lesson which encourages the trauma of change. Uh, the, the, of course, headlines are headlines, and anything that goes wrong is quite understandably profiled. 
But the House of Lords is full of some very intelligent and in, in, industrious people. It, it does, it makes a major contribution. Even in terms of the hereditary unsung. I mean, Well, I mean, whether, you know, you've got the bishops, for example, is another uh, interesting example of uh, what, what you want to have as a reflection of this country today. So you can you can look at all sorts of aspects of it and say, well, let's tinker here, let's adjust there. But in the end, you're left with an anachronism for the past and agreement as to what to do in its place. Mm. So, um, frankly, there are many more urgent things to deal with in this changing the House of Lords. And just uh, very finally, we're talking about uh, politicians and drinks today. I wonder who is the best politician in your career that you've had a drink with? Who is the best boozer and what did they have? Well, I think the drink is totally irrelevant. To me, the the prime minister that I regard as uh, outstanding of my lifetime is Harold Macmillan, because he he told the truth about Britain's changed position in the world. And it's a very, very difficult thing to tell a nation that they've got to change their assumptions. That's all we've got time for on the Red Box Politics Podcast. Thank you very much for downloading. Uh, do subscribe wherever you found us, by the way. It means that this podcast plops into your phone or device or whatever every time there's a new one. And remember, if you want to get the Red Box email every morning, which Patrick Maguire runs, which is excellent, uh, you have to become a Time subscriber. So go to the Times website, uh, you can get your first month free, and you not only get the Red Box email, but you get the uh, business briefing as well, which is really good. Uh, they're all online, thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. And if you're a bit old-fashioned and like linear live broadcasting, um, I'm sitting in for Matt. His uh, radio show on Times Radio is live 10am to 1pm, Monday to Thursday, and you can uh, get Times Radio on DAB, uh, the app, uh, or you can listen on your smart speaker if you're one of those uh, funky people who've got one of those. Thanks for listening. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.